This episode is brought to you by Harry's.com, where you can get high-quality shaving products for about half the price of name-brand razors. Plus, get $5 off your order when you use the offer code BEST at checkout. And also Casper, where you can get an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Get $50 off your order when you go to Casper.com BEST and use the offer code BEST at checkout. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Redacted Tonight, The Young Turks, Human Rights to watch This Week in Blackness, Brave New Films, The David Pakman Show, The Majority Report, and Counterspin. Ah! <laughs> Sorry to do that right at the beginning of the show, but I just wanted to fit your expectations of the media. I know that if a new show doesn't fill your pants quickly with a bowel-loosening story, then you'll turn the channel to something that will, like Antiques Roadshow. Really, lady? You've had George Washington's boyhood cabinet your entire life and you let your stupid kids mark down how tall they'd grown on the side of it? Decreasing the value for every inch? If your son had been 5'6 instead of a freakish 6'9, you could retire right now! Look, media fear frenzies throw the nation blindly into full-fledged panic quicker than Joe Biden finds the minibar in a hotel room. The media can make us afraid of terrorism or ISIS or crack babies or Dennis Rodman quickly and easily because thinking for ourselves is too much. If I wanted to think for myself, I would ask Jenny McCarthy to do it for me, okay? <laughs> Want an example? In 2003, how many chemical weapon attack stories did the media have to do before we were all draping our homes with plastic sheets? Why shouldn't I trust a little plastic on my house? It worked for my pecker during the Thai ladyboy incident of 1985. I always say, when trouble's bad, double bag. Senseless fear is how our leaders have pushed us into war, passed the Patriot Act, and justified NSA surveillance. As M. Asher Cantrell notes, in the years since 9-11, the statistical chance of being killed in a terror attack in the Western world has fallen to base basically zero. However, fireworks kill about a dozen people a year, as they should, all right? It's not truly patriotism unless you're willing to lose at least a couple of fingers in celebration of it. <laughs> Full disclosure, I once burnt the hair off my dog's chest with a firework, but it made her stronger and less trusting of me, both of which served her well. <laughs> Remember the summer of the sharks? In 2001, the media convinced the nation that massive prehistoric animals with chainsaw mouths and an overwhelming taste for blood were something to fear. I mean, they are something to fear, but only when you're face to face with one. The media had the entire country in a panic. People in Nebraska were afraid to leave their porch lest a great white got loose in the cornfields. People 10,000 times more likely to get killed by their own guns were sleeping with a loaded magnum under their pillow with KY jelly on the trigger just to make sure it didn't get stuck in the heat of the shark attack. Only five people died of shark attacks that year, fewer than the year before. Cows kill an average of 22 Americans a year, so Nebraskans should hide on the porch from the cows. These cows need to be stopped. We should set up some kind of giant cow killing farms where we could just take them out one by one. What's up? I'm told we're already doing it. Good. Good. 
Or what about the knockout game? Remember that? Tell another example of young black Americans committing senseless crimes. It is called the knockout game. Innocent people being assaulted and the attacks posted on the net. It's terrifying! I started punching out random black people just to get the jump on them. Then I started punching people with a tan because you can't be too safe. Then I started punching white people because they're f***ing annoying. All right, well, why wouldn't you punch them? But then, as Alan Noble wrote at the time, nobody seems to have any evidence that this trend is spreading, or that it's new, or that it's racially motivated, or that black youths are the ones typically responsible. So except for those things, be afraid. <laughs> Once the truth came out, the media quickly moved on without a word, which is the same thing they did for killer bees or mad cows, shortage of, fl uh, uh, of flu vaccines, and even teenagers soaking tampons with vodka and sticking them up their butts. I'm not kidding. But I knew instantly that was not really a trend because it stung like a bitch. Right? I was completely unable to enjoy my niece's piano recital. So as a nation, we're freaking out about terrorist attacks and immigrants rather than fearing the things we need to fear, like big banks and willful ignorance, blind faith and intolerance, corporate pollution and the dismantling of our freedoms. That's what we need to fear. As Alternet said in their series on this, people cannot think clearly when they are afraid. Fear is the enemy of reason. Just like vodka tampons in the back door. I won't stand for this. I say, America, turn off the mainstream media. Be afraid of nonsense no longer. Take out your butt tampon. Sunday Times recently had an article about Edward Snowden where they charged that uh, British intelligence and specifically their spies uh, were endangered by Edward Snowden's revelations. In fact, the headline read, British spies betrayed to Russians and Chinese. Wow, that sounds like a very strong statement. Well, it didn't seem like uh, Snowden had any information about anybody in MI6. In fact, other people who've looked at the information, the totality of the information that he had, say that, no, there was no information about any MI6 six officers at all. Okay, So where did they get this story from? Well, it turns out, by their own admission, the Sunday Times got it from the British government. Now, did they double-check on that? Nope. Who says that? They say that. The guy who wrote the story is Tom Harper. He was on CNN. They asked him, hey, wait a minute now, did you see any evidence that the British spies were actually their names or information was given to the Russians and Chinese and their safety was compromised. His answer is, I don't know the answer to that. All we know is that this is effectively the official position of the British government. Well, thank you for being Pravda. We appreciate that. And thank you for printing that with that headline. Your job is not to be a stenographer for the British government. If they come to you with what they claim is intelligence, you're supposed to say, oh, really? Well, what is it? Where's the evidence? That's supposed to be, oh, okay, now I will just print it. So they say, well, how could you do this? And do you have any evidence that this is true? The thing that you wrote. Tom Harper says, quote, 
uh, obviously allegations at the moment from our point of view, and it's really for the British government to defend it. So, by his own admission, he just ran the allegations. True, not true, I don't know, I don't care. My job is to take it from the British government and print it in my newspapers and pretend it's the truth. Allegations, I don't know, true, I don't know. What am I, a reporter? What are you asking me for? That's the British government. I, I'm their bitch. I, I work for them. I mean, I theoretically get paid by the Sunday Times. The Sunday Times theoretically is in the business of trying to uh, appeal to the population and get them to read. No, 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 they work for the government. Government says something, we just print it and we put it out. Uh, the Sunday Times put it out a statement on this. They say, quote, this story was responsible journalism and another example of the Sunday Times setting the news agenda. Well, the second part of that is true. And the British government knows that. They want to set the news agenda, and the Sunday Times helps them uh, peddle their bullshit, their propaganda. And this is exactly how Pravda used to set the news agenda back in the Soviet Union. They would say, oh, the Politburo says this, right? And here the Sunday Times, in this case, it's literal, literal. We, uh, the British government said it, so we printed it. No, we don't have any evidence of it. We don't care about the evidence. We don't care what's true. Our job is to print whatever the British government tells us to print. You call this journalism? That is pathetic. It's pathetic. If you think it's any better in America, phew, <laughs> you haven't seen America lately. No, it's the New York Times did very similar things before the Iraq war. Judith Miller, I, I have sources in the government that say that Saddam Hussein did this, that, has weapons of mass destruction, yellow cake, whatever you need. I printed it. I didn't say it was true. I printed it because the government told me to print it. And you think it's just about Iraq? They're still doing it about Iran. They still do it about every drone strike. They do it about every uh, story out there on the the Bin Laden raid. The government told me that the uh, CIA told us that the torture worked, and that's how they got the information. They said they had a courier. Later we find out it was actually, he was basically Pakistan's prisoner, and a guy wanted a $25 million bounty. Now NBC News confirming that, New York Times confirming that, uh, it was originally bro uh, broken by Seymour Hersh. Is that what our media told us? No, the government told us there was a courier. Oh, my God, what a courageous job by the CIA. Brilliant guys at the CIA to track the courier. There's no courier. He was a prisoner. There's no courier. A guy walked in and said, Bin Laden's over there. We're Pakistani intelligence. We've been keeping them since 2006. All these lies. And what do we have? We have so-called journalists, reporters, and our so-called media in the West who just reprint the lies that the government said and take it at face value and think that's their job. So, final part of the Sunday Times statement on this. They say, we reported what various reliable and well-informed sources from within the government told us. We fully stand by our story, as did the BBC, which also had it confirmed by government sources in its reporting yesterday. You see that? We did our job. We did as the government told us. The government sources told us to say it. We said it. Yay for journalism. And then we criticize other governments for doing propaganda. Are you kidding me? We mastered propaganda. We're the people who invented propaganda. This is Propaganda 101. Snowden reveals to the American people and to the British people and to the uh, people of the whole world what our governments are actually up to. He is the enemy of the state. And if the state says he uh, has endangered people's lives, he's dangerous, well, then we print that, because we work for the state. The Sunday Times is despicable.
despicable in this regard. Despicable. Just know what you're dealing with. Protecting a source is paramount for me. If I can't report a story without keeping a source safe, I'm not going to report the story. But what is clear now is that it doesn't necessarily require a reporter to reveal the sources. The United States government is collecting huge amounts of information, electronic records of emails, phone calls, actual chat conversations, photographs. Journalists are afraid that there's a record of their communications, of their interaction, and that that's going to feed into a leak investigation or a leak prosecution. What we found out through the Snowden disclosures is that the United States government is collecting all of our metadata, which shows who your social and professional networks are, who your connections are, where you are at a particular time, where perhaps a source is. They don't need to know what you were talking about. They've got enough to be able to go to your source and say, why were you talking to this journalist? A lot of officials won't even talk about unclassified things. They won't wave you off a story. They won't confirm an unclassified detail because it's not worth the headache. It's not worth the risk. I think anybody who is a good reporter now has to think about how do you contact somebody without leaving, you know, electronic crumbs, a trail of crumbs behind you that sort of directs potential investigators to your source. Now, when it comes to protecting a source, I've had to teach myself. You know, using an encryption engine, this kind of thing, I don't take my iPhone with me when I go to meet a source. Unless you take the battery out, you can still be tracked. I was leaked classified uh, intelligence community documents last year that cataloged quite a few years of U.S. drone strikes in Pakistan. I went to considerable lengths to protect my source, and I'm not going to tell you what I did. We sometimes feel, or I feel at least, like you're operating like somebody in the mafia. I've got to go around with a bag full of quarters, and if you can find a payphone, use it, or use like drug dealers use, you know, throwaway burner phones. These are all the steps that we have to take to get rid of an electronic trail. To have to take those kind of steps, you know, makes journalists feel like we're criminals and like we're doing something wrong. And I don't think we are. I think we're providing a, a useful uh, service uh, to Americans to know what's going on in their government and what's happening. We've taken for granted for a very long time the work of these journalists in getting to us information about what the government is doing. If we allow the government to restrict the way journalists work and interact with their sources, we will start to see less information about the government and therefore be less able to hold the government accountable. If you've never heard of Casper mattresses, then you must be new to the show, so welcome. Uh, Casper sent me one of their mattresses to try out several months ago, and I have been singing its praises ever since. It's one of those fancy memory foam mattresses, but through some sort of technical wizardry, they managed to mix in some latex foam as well. The combination of the two gives you just the right, you know, sink and bounce, but luckily, neither you nor I really needs to understand how it works. 
You can just try it out and judge the results yourself. And they make it easy. Instead of awkwardly trying out a mattress in a showroom, Casper delivers the mattress to your door and gives you 100 days to try it out risk-free. If you don't like it, you can send it back, and the shipping is free both ways. And while mattresses can often cost $1,500 or more, one of the benefits of not having to pay the overhead of a showroom or a salesman or any of that nonsense is that Casper's prices start at only $500 for a twin size, and their largest, the king size, only goes up to $950. Plus, by going to casper.com slash best and using the offer code best at checkout, they'll knock off an additional $50 for you, so you can get their obsessively engineered mattress at an even more shockingly fair price. Terms and conditions apply. So if you're in the market for a mattress, then check out their website for details on the design and construction of their American-made mattress, as well as reviews from real-life Casper sleepers. And remember to go to casper.com slash best and use the offer code best at checkout for $50 off your order and to support this show at the same time. MSNBC uh, has just launched NBC Black. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, uh, for those of you who don't know, the Grio used to be MSNBC's black-focused blog. I used to call it the blog for Negroes. I used to write for them sometimes. Joanne Reed was the uh, editor-in-chief for a while. I've written, I've written, I've written for yeah, a while. And then she... But at the same time, I also uh, remember having a meeting with them right before, right before, I think right when they got taken over, or right, well, yeah, right after they got taken over by MSNBC, uh, and they were exp- explaining to me how... Um, I should. Uh, I should. Uh, we we should be doing the trip videos, uh, but they weren't going to pay me. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, uh, MSNBC sold the Grio back to its original owners, and they have launched NBC Black, which is, I guess, supposed to be a vertical of NBC News to go yes. along with NBC Latino, NBC Asian, NBC. There is no NBC Asian. NBC Native American, <laughs> NBC, no NBC LGBT people, NBC hat lovers. I don't know. They got all kinds of, you know, they're... they're NBC drop it low. <laughs> NBC dropping it like it's hot. NBC for twerkers. Um, and so the question becomes, do we need a separate NBC black? Or should maybe NBC just incorporate all the stuff that black people are interested in into the regular news so that we're not... So that the people who we need to understand black identity and we need to understand what's going on with black politics, a.k.a. white people might just have to get some of that in their news if they're just reading the regular news page. Because otherwise you have NBC Black and they're like, oh, well, I'm not black, so I'm not going to read that. It doesn't, doesn't concern me. How do I, again, this is, I feel like uh, this is a part of my uh, uh, Elon's uh, is uh, being contrary day. Uh, I saw this and I immediately my eyebrow, like, so first of all, I already knew about NBC Black, uh, because that dude who wrote the article last week that I kind of, uh, uh, got on was hit, it was a part of NBC Black. I think I even mentioned it. Um, which by the way, uh, FYI, that, uh, reporter actually contacted me and apologized for his, uh, misrepresentation of my word, my words, and he actually edited, uh, the, uh, the article. So I, so I actually really appreciate that. But, Outside of that, so yeah, I saw it, and so I was like, NBC Black, oh, that's that thing, because I, I knew something was happening after the Grio got sold, whatever. But then today, they announced it, today, like, NBC Black, and I was like, really? NBC Black announced on um, on uh, Martin Luther King Day, like, ah, to show you we care, uh, and their tagline, elevating America's conversation about black identity, politics, and culture today. And I was like, you know what would be a really great way to elevate that? By just reporting stuff without calling it NBC Black. Weird how that works. Yeah. 
And I know that you can, Elon, you're being contrary, Elon. Why can't, what's wrong with that? There's a, it's just a black section. I'm like, here's my thing. And they're like, cause then people say, well, there's NBC Latino and stuff like that. First of all, I made the argument, and I've, I've always thought it was slightly different, because, uh, with that community, uh, one of the fastest growing communities also has a large uh, part of the community that also, that speaks Spanish. And so in my mind, I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, so they're talking to that, uh, that space. They might be, uh, they're producing, uh, stuff, uh, around that, that, uh, that reaches that space in Spanish, stuff like that. To me, that makes sense, right? Black folks isn't exactly, that's not, I mean, yes, there, and please note there are black folks that obviously speak other languages, but for the, uh, the, the majority of, uh, of, of black folks, especially uh, black Americans, we, we speak English here in America, and our history and our stories are just kind of like, it is what should be discussed in America. It's intertwined. They're like, like socioeconomics, uh, like uh, how, how our, our, our areas work, like, uh, the, uh, us being a part of the base. Like, we, we're actually, of import, I would argue, and it's something that we were constantly arguing about how you, they don't treat our stories and our, uh, our stories and our community as a part of America, as a part of American citizens. And they're like, okay, no, we're gonna totally take care of you. We're gonna, we're gonna treat you guys right. So we're gonna make this special section, um, called, um, NBC Black. Uh, you might have heard of it. Hashtag NBC Black. And we're gonna talk about you. We're gonna, hire, we're gonna have some black writers talk about you guys. It's like, I, and I flat out said, I said, you know what, if I, like, this week of blackness exists because of a necessity. Uh, to tell stories, to be able to uh, have this conversation, and uh, to highlight voices that the mainstream media will not do. The reason why there has, there needs to be a, uh, this week of blackness is because of what NBC and all these other spaces do. Right. And like, and ne- it's, it's a necessity. Whereas, is there really a necessity to create an NBC black? Or could you just hire more diverse editors, writers, things like that? actually push forward to tell our stories and to make our stories a part of the very fabric of American culture as opposed to the black story or something like that. Is it, could you, could you do that? Is it a possibility? And I know that like, oh, well, you, well we just have to like, sometimes it's, it's steps. It's like, great, but I'm not telling them to shut it down tomorrow, but at the same time, I feel like they have to be called out about it. Like how, just how it looks. This, I mean, it, it looks, Aaron, am I, do you, again, like I say, am I, am I being contrary to Elon today? I think, uh, well, that's the thing. I, I think it would require patience, like you said. It would require months of proper reporting so that they would just notice a tonal change. But that takes time, and they're still in the business of making money. So splashy stuff works better for what their bottom line is. So it's unfortunate. It's just an unfortunate um, facet of the business to me. Because what you're saying is right. Is it? It's just, like, over time, we'll just be like, oh, NBC's coverage and diversity is just top-notch, and it's just changing over time. We'd notice it. That's not that's not splashy. That's not going to help make the money, like you know, like NBC Black would. So, maybe the Fox News Black. Oh my God, the word <laughs> that would be the worst thing. Fox News Black. Uh, that would be the absolute worst thing possible. I would go there every day. What are you talking about? They would get my business. I would. I, get, I would have to see what's going on. I would have to see every day what they're doing. If there was a Fox News Black, I would, like, I would have to go there. But then I would like, I would like, uh, f- uh like. Like, like use the, the, the lashes every time I go there. Like, it would be like a part of my, like, my, I don't know, penance for some crime I had done in the past. Uh, no. And, and, and so this to me, it, like I said, it's, a, it's just, I find it problematic overall. And I wish that, uh, that it could be, like I said, just reconsider how it's, uh, it's framed. And so some people are like, well, it's just, it's just, the, uh, gonna be a part of a, um, uh, it's gonna be on the front page of, of NBC News. It's gonna be regular news. But then just like, it's just a, th- a vertical on the side. And I'm like, well, cool. So when you click on it, 
is it going to say NBC Black? Because, by the way, it does say NBC Black uh, on it. And I'm like, all right, well, then you do realize that there are people that once they just see the term black, they shut down, right? Right. And if you're a news space and you're supposed to be, you're, you want to elevate these things, do you want to, do you want to actually do that? Like, TWIB does it, like I said, I use blackness and our title and things like that out of, out of political necessity. It is a political statement when we, uh, when we publish and reproduce and we create with this title. Whereas if I'm NBC News, what am I doing? There's yeah. no, what's your political, what's your political statement? What are you doing? It's much more powerful to hire 20 new reporters of color, 15 new editors, and stuff like that, and just have it happen. Just put it in there. Like, uh, like uh, Marcos, I was talking to Marcos Melitzis, who uh, runs uh, Coast, uh, and he was talking about how, what Intel did. Intel just took $350 million and said over the next five years they're, gonna, they're using $350 million to make sure that Intel looks like America. And I'm like... Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, three, they're gonna take like millions and millions of dollars to, to, to hire, like train somebody, make sure you play. I can, I can go with that. Mm-hmm. Now, will it work? Eh, we'll talk about that later. Right. At least but, they're trying. Yeah, that, that's a different. To me, that's a different idea as opposed to just like. To me, this just looks like like painting over something, uh, and it's actually still the the shitty thing. But now it's painted over. It's like ah, no glossy finish. Hashtag hashtag black glossy finish. Hashtag black glossy finish. <laughs> I believe that is the name of today's episode. <laughs> Hashtag black glossy finish. Funny how the media covers white riots versus black protests. News. Seems like when the protesters are black, the media uses some pretty harsh words. The bad guys. Lawlessness, looting, wild animals, criminals, uh, and thugs. Thugs. Isn't it the right word? However, if you're white and you're tearing up the city because of a game, you're just young people. Young people danced on a flipped over car as UK fans did stupid things. Some maybe got a little out of control. Seeing a scene like this just shows how passionate the UK fans are. It's so tough to lose and unfortunately the ugly side that we sometimes see in sports. And notice how the police always show up to a black protest in military-grade equipment, and yet the media claims they're just doing nothing. It's inexplicable why the police are doing nothing. Let's mobilize the National Guard. If I'm a riot and I see the police doing nothing, I might feel like I have a license. You would. But at white riots, the cops actually are standing around doing nothing. Another group of cops over there just standing there. No one was really doing anything. These guys look like they could be watching a parade. And why is it that the leadership of the black community is always called into question? Where is the leadership? Leadership. The black leadership. The absence of leadership. And it goes back to leadership, but that leadership has to come from the community. But no one ever questions the leadership of white parents who let their kids burn down and vandalize their college campus. These are just uh, young college students who think they're playing some kind of a game with police officers. You know, sometimes they don't even call a white riot a riot. Party gone awry. Some fans got a bit too rowdy after the win. Dispute. A bloody brawl. There was some type of altercation. Waco, 170 arrested. Nine people dead. They're not thugs. Baltimore, no deaths, but it's a riot. Chock full of thugs. Thugs. Just thugs. What if the media portrayed white rioters, same as black protesters? Let's switch the audio and see how it plays out. 
breaking news, violent protests. What you're looking at is the unraveling of the civil society. Criminals and thugs. And they're raising hell and they're destroying property. These idiotic thugs rioting and looting are hurting their own people. Wild animals burning buildings down. Especially if they know the media's all there, right? Got the cameras on everyone. It's, it's become its own reality show. Who acts like that towards a police officer? Think for yourself. Don't let racist media color your perceptions. Demand fairness in media coverage. Tell the media to put an end to calling black people thugs. The new ratings numbers for cable news are out from the first quarter of 2015, and I think any reasonable person, after seeing these numbers, would be wondering whether MSNBC is dying. MSNBC saw a 39% drop in the key demographic of adults 25 to 54 years old in the first quarter of 2015, compared to the first quarter of 2014. But they also had their worst... <laughs> yeah, right there, Lewis? Lewis uh, having some trouble there. Uh, I think there's some kind of construction going on near Lewis's office, but I will continue. Uh, in the first quarter of 2015 compared to the first quarter of 2014, 39% drop in the key demographic of 25 to 54. The nighttime MSNBC shows are just falling off a cliff as far as ratings go. The Rachel Maddow Show, all-time quarter low, only 145,000 viewers in the key demographic down 19% in total viewers. All in with Chris Hayes and last word with Lawrence O'Donnell fell to their worst quarterly 25 to 54 numbers since their debuts back in 2013 and 2010. And Hardball with Chris Matthews, lowest rated quarter in the key demographic of 25 to 54 since the second quarter of 2005, essentially 10 years ago, with an average audience of 126,000. Now, you could say, well, it's just that right now people aren't as interested in politics. But then you would think that Fox News wouldn't be seeing huge growth and that CNN wouldn't be seeing moderate growth. CNN also doing slightly better in the last quarter. I don't know what the specific explanation is. I said for a long time, I don't know that the future of progressive media is in MSNBC. MSNBC has chosen editorially, er, editorially to have more of a progressive point of view, but it is still a very corporate network. And uh, the bounds within which progressivism is acceptable on MSNBC are still far more narrow than on what we would consider uh, independent progressive media outlets. So I remain unconvinced that the future of progressivism is in MSNBC, and I think that these numbers absolutely reflect that. I'd be curious to see what the audience thinks. I got a bunch of emails. We posted these ratings, this story, to our Facebook page earlier today, and people wrote to me saying, you know, um, I see MSNBC as a, um, a, as a slightly more liberal corporate media outlet, but I still don't go to them for real analysis because as we saw what happened with Cenk Uger, 
from the Young Turks when he was hosting for a little while on MSNBC. Once he became critical of the Obama administration, when he was doing serious critiques from the left of a Democratic administration, there was blowback. And his bosses said, you know, you really got to tone this down. The White House is not thrilled with how hard you're hitting them. Uh, and I think there's absolutely no question that the boundaries of progressive analysis on corporate media are far more narrow than they are on programs like this or other independent networks. So no surprise as far as the numbers go, and we're going to continue watching it and, and seeing where it goes. But numerous times now I tell you about record low numbers on MSNBC. What will they ultimately do? I don't know. This show is sponsored by Harry's.com, makers of fine razors and other shaving supplies. They've been shaking up the shaving industry, saving people loads of time and money for a few years now. They got their start after one of the founders examined a shopping experience of his in which he had gone to the drugstore, had to get help from an employee freeing a set of razors from their plastic jail on the shelf, and then forked over an obscene amount of money for the pleasure. Surely there was a better way. And now there is. Harry's makes extremely high quality blades that you can get for about half the price of the big name competitors, and you don't need anyone's help to free anything from a plastic jail. You just order everything you need online, and shipping is free. You can order a la carte or set up a shave plan to refill your supplies automatically without ever having to think about it again. In addition to their blades, they also make great shaving cream and foaming shave gel. I'm personally partial to the gel, as well as shave moisturizer, so they've got you covered. Covered end to end, and it all starts with their starter kit. It comes with a razor handle, blades, and shaving cream or gel, all for just $15. And using the coupon code BEST at checkout takes another $5 off that. So go to Harry's.com to get a starter kit of your own. That's H A R R Y S.com and enter the coupon code BEST at checkout for $5 off the starter set and start shaving smarter today. Look at the way that some people report on this. It's fascinating. And I was interviewed, I think I mentioned this the other day, I was interviewed by a, a Politico reporter who was like, who I said, you know, who, who, was, ta who was writing a piece on uh, O'Malley. And the angle was, why aren't people paying more attention to Martin O'Malley as opposed to Elizabeth Warren? And I said, well, I don't understand. Elizabeth Warren's not running. Shouldn't the question be, why are they uh, paying more attention to, uh, to Bernie Sanders? And he's like, well, Bernie Sanders can't win. Well, that may be true, but Elizabeth Warren, she can't win either because she's not running. And you're doing a story on Martin O'Malley... And if Bernie Sanders can't win, newsflash, Martin O'Malley can't win. That's just reality. It is possible, I guess, that Martin O'Malley would have, has an infinitesimally small better chance than Bernie Sanders, because if something happened to Hillary Clinton or she decided to drop out of the race, that Martin O'Malley might be their second choice. And by there, I mean the establishment or all these voters who have no idea who he is. But it's 
more likely that Joe Biden would jump in or more likely that some other establishment person would jump in. So you can't say it's ridiculous to contemplate Bernie Sanders as winning the Democratic primary and not say the same thing about anyone else. But this is how disregarded the idea of what Bernie Sanders advocates is in the establishment and in the Beltway media. And the irony of that is none of his positions are controversial to the American public. The idea of expanding Social Security, overwhelming support. The idea of universal health care, overwhelming support. Child care, overwhelming support. Debt-free college. I haven't seen the polling on that, but I imagine it's a pretty mainstream idea. Michael will look that up for me right now. And to think, all right, so let me read this story from you for Politico. This is a different reporter. Jonathan Topaz. It's not your everyday Americans at Bernie Sanders' kickoff rally. That's the headline. It's not your everyday Americans at Bernie Sanders' kickoff rally. The long-shot presidential contender launches campaign from the People's Republic of Burlington. I mean, this is ridiculous. I want to compare this to something that um, Duncan Black at Atrios pulled the other day. I want to compare that headline with Fiorina talks in Iowa swoons, but will it last? Republicans in Iowa are starting to swoon over Carly Fiorina, a former Silicon Valley executive who is mostly unknown in much of the country. Seven paragraphs later, in paragraph eight, while supporters in Iowa noted that she had doubled her standing in state polls, it was a statistically insignificant change from one to two percent. Santorum also at 2%. 5% supported Mr. Bush. So they're swooning in Iowa. And by Iowa, we mean 1% to 2%. Maybe that doesn't even, that's not even a proper measure because it's so small, it's almost statistically insignificant. It's probably within the margin of error. They, she could be, 0% of Iowa could be swooning over her. When Carly Fiorina gives her speeches, in fact, every speech that she has given, not every, 90%, 90% of Chris Christie's speeches, Bush's speeches, Clinton's speeches, are they in front of everyday Americans? Or are they in front of people who are statistically so far embedded in the margins of income distribution and life experiences in this country that few of any of the people that uh, hear the sound of my voice have even ever met anyone like that.
These weren't your everyday Americans who came out to support Bernie Sanders on Tuesday. A self-described Democratic Socialist kicked off. Self-described Democratic Socialist. How many times have you ever read... John Kasich is a proud conservative, espousing his proud conservative values, Rick Santorum. Jeb Bush is trying to argue he's a proud conservative. Eh, he's self-described democratic socialist. I wonder if anyone's ever said self-described conservative. Has anyone even read? Because you know what the, the implication is there. I'm not disparaging him by calling him a democratic socialist. He describes himself that way. I don't want to be blamed for calling him a democratic socialist. That's how he IDs. I mean, this, this entire thing is written like a parody. He kicked off his long shot run for the White House in his adopted hometown of Burlington, a lakeside city full of characters who might not have passed the pre-selection process for Hillary Clinton's door of roundtables. Really? <laughs> in the afternoon, a people's assembly of hundreds of Sanders supporters gathered in City Hall Park. Dreadlocked guitars played in the morning and patrons browsed near the hemp pest, which averages its size as itself as the largest organic hemp product store in the world. Do they, do they have that same description for some of the people that come to a Rand Paul type event? Oh, come on, man. Because I'll guarantee you could find those same type of people there. Well, this isn't even the Bernie Sanders event. This is just people who have assembled... Before the Bernie Sanders event. I mean, you could really do that for any sort of public space that someone's going to talk to. Just describe who's there now, before the event. And then a he goes on to talk about... A right. Dorito out of a bag in preparation for Jeb Bush's right. announcement. Then he goes on to write, Sanders stuck. Uh, this is... Then jumps to later in the evening when there's thousands listening to Bernie Sanders. Sanders stuck to a familiar populist script. Famili familiar, but what? In other words, Sanders stuck to a, a tired... I mean, when was the last time we... Uh, Jeb Bush stuck to a familiar neoliberal script in saying there should be no no uh, interference in uh, the so-called free market. No, you just don't hear that. Then he went on to, I don't know, bury the other stuff in the, the piece. Unbelievable.
quaint notions about journalism department, many would think there was something wrong with an investigative reporter who consults directly with an advertiser to think of ways for them to profit from the news. But here we are. Media blogger Jim Romanesco reported on an ad placed by the Cincinnati Enquirer for an investigative reporter. But not just any reporter. Candidates needed to know that 50% of their focus would be readers aged 25 to 45. And that they would be working with, quote, an advertising partner to grow and monetize the 25 to 45 audience, close quote. Romanesco asked Inquirer editor Carolyn Washburn to explain how that whole monetizing thing would work. Her response was not reassuring. That expectation was part of all beat job descriptions, she said. Sales reps and reporters can share insights and make introductions for each other that may be helpful. But wait a minute, aren't some of those advertisers also potential sources? Well, why, yes. Quote, many of those organizations are both advertisers and sources. And many of those organizations are trying to grow their reach among 25 to 45-year-olds in the community just as we are. Close quote. By the time Washburn says that reporters' profit-driven collaboration with advertisers, who are also sources, doesn't hurt the newsroom or readers at all, you might be wondering if she's ever even heard of conflict of interest. But, she assures, she can fathom circumstances in which she'd say no to a sponsor request, and reporters are told to raise questions if they are ever uncomfortable or uncertain. Well, it's not their ability to ask questions that troubles us. It's what the answers seem likely to be. Huge news about broadband. I love this story. WiredWest.net is reporting that after creating a telecommunications co-op to bring broadband to rural communities in western Massachusetts and completing four years of planning, Wired West member towns have signaled they are ready to move forward with a regional fiber optic high-speed internet network. Over the last two months, 22 different communities in Massachusetts have passed bond authorizations totaling $34.5 million for their town's portion of costs to build a fiber optic network. The votes have been characterized by record attendance and passage by overwhelming margins, including three unanimous town votes. They were pretty small towns, admittedly. On June 29th, the town of Goshen, Massachusetts, became the 20th town to authorize funding with a record turnout of 240 voters. Yeah, a small town. Um, these, this is just such great news, Lewis. And let's remember, most of the towns currently involved in this have limited or just non-existent broadband service. And a lot of it is because the big for-profit internet service providers just aren't interested in doing businesses in these small towns. The cost to them for building the infrastructure 
is too high relative to what they would make from a few thousand subscribers in these small towns. So these towns haven't necessarily defeated the big internet service providers, but if this is successful, these would be some really good test cases and an incentive for bigger towns to try to build municipal broadband as well. Yes, if this uh, moves over into the town we are from, then that would be a, a huge deal. And ultimately, if we see this happening in places like Boston, Worcester, Springfield in Massachusetts, that would just be incredible. And I predict if that happens, other states will start doing the same thing as well. The bigger point is, it's increasingly clear that broadband internet should be treated as a public utility, as it is going to be by the FCC, and it really is one. I mean, let's let's think about how Internet is used today. It really is a public utility. Municipalities already finance their own water lines, their own sewage lines in most cases. Why should fiber optic cables be any different in the future? It perfectly uh, uh, aligns with what a public utility is. And this project, these 22 towns, will hopefully legitimize the idea of city-run broadband. Yeah, there will be some people who say it's communism, it's socialism, blah, blah, blah. But those people aren't looking, well, maybe the extreme libertarians are, but for the most part, those people are not looking to privatize the water or the sewage systems in most towns. And they should really be thinking of high-speed Internet in the exact same way. Yeah, I, um, I'm very happy about this. I, I, you know, there's no need to be at the, you know, to be, have our will imposed by these uh, big telecom companies on us. It's completely outrageous and, you know, for the most part, they've been winning all the battles. And last thought on this, the telecom giants want to outlaw municipal broadband and have spent a lot of money trying to do it. That should tell you everything you need to know about how great of an idea municipal broadband is. So Chuck Todd had a number of comedians on Meet the Press uh, to talk about the end of the year and all the things that happened in the news. Uh, he had W. Kamal Bell and Louis Black. And um, as Louis Black was talking about the news and the state of the media, Chuck Todd accidentally admitted something that is very interesting. Watch. I, I really do think part of the problem is, is that the cynicism is caused by the fact that more in the course of my lifetime and having lived in Washington, that Washington is increasingly in a bubble, much the same way that a lot of people who live in Hollywood are in a bubble. When I started going on the road 25 years ago and I was told, well, you're too angry, they're not going to get it. They, what I was discovering was they were angrier than I was. And there's a sense of disenfranchisement now that, that I think is seen in the, in the number of people who went and voted that I have just never experienced in my lifetime. And I've watched you and everybody else where somebody comes on, and I don't know how you do it, because I'd be, I, I don't know how you do it, I'd be barking at them. <laughs> because they'll sit there and go, and you sit you there. Know, we all sit there because we all know the first time we bark. It's the last time we do the show. Yeah. There's something sometimes where it's the last time you're ever, all of a sudden, nobody will come on your show, right? Yeah. There is yeah. that balance. But, but the thing that oh, there it was. Wow, what an admission, right? I mean, that's what we've been saying on the show for a long time, right? And that's part of what I said about MSNBC, where Chuck used to also work, right? Where I worked and why I left. 
And there he just admitted. He said, the first time we bark is the last time we do the show. And he also said, and this is really important, it's about access, right? He said, they won't come on our show anymore if we bark. Bark, all that means is hold them accountable, aggressively. It doesn't mean yelling, it doesn't mean screaming, it doesn't mean losing your temper. It means, hey, listen, you said this, but it isn't true, or here's where you got the money. Now, it seems that you vote uh, almost 100% of the time with the way that your donors want you to vote. Isn't that interesting, Quincy? Well, oh, you're barking, Chuck. You're barking. Barking up the wrong tree, okay? And that'll be your last show. So access is a huge part of it. And obviously what your bosses think and how they don't want you to bark is an enormous part of what's wrong with the media. See, Louis Black is right. <laughs> Sometimes people say, I'm angry. Well, there's even a whole movie called Mad as Hell about us, right? But the reality is that the people are angrier. Uh, the number one comment I get in the streets is, I I'm so glad that you get to express my outrage and my anger, and it makes me feel better. Now, what they don't talk about is, what are we angry about? We're angry that the politicians don't represent us anymore. And it's obvious that they represent the powerful, the special interests, the ones who are paying them through campaign contributions and through really lucrative jobs after they leave office. But those are the things that are left unsaid because the first time you say it, it'll be the last time you do a show on the mainstream media. That's as devastating an admission as it gets. So understand that that's why you have the lukewarm press that you do, because it's structured to be that way. That's why you need independent media, because we're the ones allowed to bark. We're the ones allowed to say the truth. I don't give a damn about losing access to politicians. Politicians aren't your buddies. and They're not the honorable gentlemen from Nebraska or Connecticut. They're the ones who have been bought. And yes, you should also talk about the people who bought them. Corporations, powerful interests, and sometimes the rich. Now, all those things cannot be said in mainstream television news. Which then, of course, leads to the question of, why would anybody watch that? Isn't it obvious at this point that they are actively concealing the truth from you? Because if they told you the truth, it'd be the last show they ever did. out of Indianapolis, Indiana. I uh, was just listening to your last podcast, and at the very end, you, uh, m I guess, more or less, you know, had questions, but, you know, wanted to kind of generate a conversation, and, and one thing that really, um, really stuck with me was, uh, was when you were asking, you know, if there's something in your life that you feel like uh, you do better at now than maybe you did last year, or, or whatever the case may be. And so I was sitting there kind of thinking about, you know, what in my life has changed significantly enough that I can realize to where I can speak on it. And I really couldn't think of anything until this morning, uh, last night, had a little tiff with a friend and, um, and this morning kind of realized what I feel like I've been able to do a lot better now than what I used to when I was younger, um, and that's simply apologizing to people and understanding that sometimes it is your fault for an argument, and sometimes 
it's best just to say you're sorry because there's no reason to necessarily argue with people that that you love and care for. Um, and that was kind of what happened last night uh, when I was younger and in high school. Um, you know, I was one of those meatheads that um, always thought was right and never felt like it was in his uh, need to ever apologize. And over the last couple of years it's kind of became clear how at times either things that I say or do may hurt others around me and so I try whenever I can I you know I try to realize and break down each situation I'm in that may have been led from an argument or something and really try to understand if I am to blame and if I am you know I try my hardest to to swallow that pill and, and say I'm sorry and that I was wrong and um, so I really feel like you know for me personally and I and I think it will would help a lot of people um, is just you know realize when you're wrong and realize when sometimes you just need to say sorry um, whether it's your fault or not you know because we have a finite amount of time on this earth and to spend it bickering with people you love and care for and wasting all that energy to do so um, just feels very unproductive and um, and you know with my generation and uh, in particular you know I'm in the, the 25 to 30 range I feel like my generation doesn't do a good job um, of owning up to themselves and their their wrongdoings and, and saying sorry and taking responsibility so I guess that's my two cents, Jay. That's kind of what I feel like I've uh, been able to uh, better myself upon, um, whether it was out of just simply wanting to or or just just doing it naturally. I'm not sure how it came about, but I feel like that's something that I've really been able to do better at. So um, I'm actually really glad you kind of posed a question like that. Um, you know, a lot of us political junkies get so bogged down in, in the back and forth and and sometimes it's just nice to have questions and to talk about things other than politics. So I appreciate you for that. Um, love the show. Keep doing, uh, keep doing a great job. Hey, Jay. My name is Nick Stubler. I only recently began listening to your show, but have since fallen in love with the program and I've been ripping through your past episodes. Thanks for consistently putting together informative and thought-provoking dialogues. At your request at the recent healthcare episode, I wanted to call in and share both a suggestion for a future show as well as a personal practice that makes me happy. As for me, these two issues are one and the same. On your website, you mention your interest in discovering new ways of living that are not only better for the individual, the collective, or the environment, but all three at once. Similarly, I find immense pleasure in reconciling and realigning my personal habits in ways that are more environmentally and socially sustainable. In time, I have become convinced that there is no greater personal action that is better for the individual, society, and the environment than switching to a vegan, plant-based diet. On a personal level, a veganic diet has been proven to be significantly more healthy for the human body than any alternative. Dr. Colin Campbell has dedicated the second half of his career towards demonstrating this fact. In 1983, he began the China-Oxford-Cornell study on diet and disease to explore the relationship between nutrition and cancer, heart, and metabolic diseases. 
The study is acknowledged to be the most comprehensive study of diet, lifestyle, and disease ever done with humans in the history of biomedical research, and has been described by the New York Times as the Grand Prix of epidemiology. In his book, The China Study, as well as in 350 authored and co-authored journal publications, Dr. Campbell demonstrates a direct correlation between good health and a plant-based diet. And although I could easily dive into the specifics that support the health benefits of a plant-based diet, I'd rather shift my focus to what I see as the real importance of a vegan diet. While being healthy certainly makes me happy, I have found much more pleasure through eliminating the cognitive dissonance between eating meat and calling myself an environmentalist. Simply put, eating animal products is irreconcilable with living an environmentally friendly lifestyle. In regards to climate change, animal agriculture is the single greatest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the world, contributing more CO2 equivalent into the atmosphere than all forms of transportation, including cars, boats, trains, and planes, combined. Consequently, a vegan's carbon footprint attributed to their diet is one-seventh that of the average omnivores. In regards to water usage, animal agriculture is responsible for 20 to 33% of all fresh water consumption in the world today. Every kilogram of beef requires 100,000 liters of water to produce. By comparison, a kilogram of wheat requires just 900 liters, and a kilogram of potatoes just 500 liters. In fact, a vegan indirectly consumes nearly 600 gallons of water per day less than a person who eats an average American diet. Compare this figure with the average American's use of 100 gallons of water in their house daily. In regards to biological diversity and conservation efforts, animal agriculture is a leading cause of species extinction, ocean dead zones, water pollution, and habitat destruction in the world. This is especially relevant as we find ourselves in the largest mass extinction event in the past 65 million years. Many experts agree that we could see a fishless ocean by 2048 due to overfishing. And animal agriculture is responsible for up to 91% of Amazon destruction. These practices are directly funded and promulgated by those who consume animal products. In regards to waste, a farm with 2,500 dairy cows produces the same amount of waste as a city with 411,000 people. In regards to public health and safety, 80% of the antibiotics sold in the U.S. are for livestock. This inevitably builds antibiotic-resistant viruses and pathogens, which then enter the human population. In regards to poverty, enough food is grown for livestock to sustain the entire human population. The livestock population in the U.S. consumes five times as much grain as the country's entire human population. 82% of starving children live in countries where food is fed to animals, and the animals are then eaten by Western countries. Plants are 15 times as effective at transferring a plot of land into protein than animals are. In sum, each day a person who eats a vegan diet saves 1,100 gallons of water, 45 pounds of grain, 30 square feet of forested land, 20 pounds of CO2 equivalent, and one animal's life. In your show, it would also be relevant to address the overwhelming effect the pharmaceutical and animal agriculture industries have on our nation's dietary standards and political officials. They want us to keep eating foods and drugs they sell, even though doing so makes us fat, depletes our vitality, and shortens our life. These industries want us to remain docile, compliant, and ignorant. They do not want us to be informed, active, and passionately alive, and they are quite willing to spend billions of dollars annually to accomplish these goals. 
it would also be relevant to address why most environmental organizations skirt these hard facts. The truth is that organizations like Greenpeace and the Sierra Club are donation-driven, and encouraging people to give up meat is divisive and unpopular. The recent documentary, Cowspiracy, um, very accurately and convincingly demonstrates this fact, and I encourage all your viewers to check it out. In short, the single greatest action the world could take to address climate change would be to go vegan. And while this may seem a daunting task for many of our listeners, it does not have to be a zero-sum game. We must all become more mindful of the foods we are putting into our body and make an effort to reduce our consumption of animal products, not necessarily cutting them entirely. Deciding to eat meat only once a day, for example, can have dramatic personal, social, and environmental benefits. If you are interested, I'd be happy to share additional scientific sources to validate each claim. Um, but in particular, I would recommend all listeners to check out the China study for health concerns. Eating Animal by Jonathan Saffron Foer for environmental and ethical concerns. And again, check out the new documentary titled Cowspiracy. Thanks for all you do, Jay, and keep up the good work. Peace. Hi, this is Vicki in Oregon. I just wanted to add to your conversation about what it is that makes people happy. I think you're on the right track that lowering expectations is the main thing we need to do. When I was a teenager, I was growing up in a time when the prevailing model of a female was a tall, very thin woman with long, straight, blonde hair and a neutral accent, none of which I had, which made me very unhappy. Over time, I came to realize that my qualities were individual and unique, and it didn't really matter. And I think so many people spend so much time obsessing about not living up to the models that our society gives us that it's very sad, it's a waste of time. And I do want to add that another thing that you can do is just to be appreciative of what you have. Every day I wake up and I'm thankful that I'm not in a place that we, the United States or Israel or someone else, is bombing. I'm happy that there aren't drones constantly flying overhead and that I'm not wondering whether I'm going to be blown to bits. I'm also thankful every time I take a hot shower because there's so many people in this world who don't have that privilege. And I also can open my refrigerator and say, what do I want to eat today? which so many people cannot. So that's all I wanted to say. Just uh, be grateful and um, enjoy your life. Thanks.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestofleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. In either case, the closer you keep your message to two minutes or under, the better chance there is it'll be played. Now, on this show, we focus on politics. Hardly anything could be more obvious than that. And, you know, my perspective is that the point of politics is to make the world a better place, to shape the future for the better, and so on. I will obviously continue to focus on politics. I think it's really important. That's what this show is all about. But a lot of my extracurricular reading recently has been on the topic of happiness, which is why I've wanted to talk about it and have sort of a lot to say on it myself. And so one of the books that I read is called Happiness, Lessons from a New Science by Richard Laird. And I'm bringing it up just because there was a, a passage in it that really sort of sums up my thinking on the relationship between politics and happiness. So this is in the conclusion chapter of the book. He has just gone you know, to great lengths explaining the concept of pursuing public policies that are in the pursuit of the quote-unquote, greatest happiness, like the principle of greatest happiness, doing things with happiness in mind. So he says, happiness comes from outside and from within. The two are not in contradiction. The true pilgrim fights the evils in the world out there and cultivates the spirit within. The secret is compassion towards oneself and others, and the principle of greatest happiness is essentially the expression of that ideal. Perhaps these two ideas could be the cornerstones of our future culture. So I think that personal happiness and politics are more or less two sides of the same coin, but I've begun to think about the focus on both the psychological aspects of one's own happiness as well as the way we design our own lives with the focus being on happiness is kind of like what emergency cards on airplanes say. You know, when the when the mask drops from the ceiling, put yours on first before trying to help the person next to you. So when the world is going to shit, it's important for you to get yourself in a good place mentally and emotionally so that you can be maximally effective when you set out to help others. This concept gets talked about in slightly different language by people working on social justice campaigns of all kinds. They talk about self-care. You know, you're no good to the movement if you're in a bad place yourself. So, you know, take a vacation, get a back rub, something, you know, get yourself back in a good headspace so that you can rejoin at, you know, full effectiveness. And as I've mentioned before, I think that the philosophy of Stoicism is an excellent place to start, and I recommend the book A Guide to the Good Life, The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy, but there are many more books I've been reading recently, and I even created a reading list page on the website, so if you want to see more of the books that I've been uh, reading, and you want to check out the ones that I think are worth your while, then go look at that page. Now, again, keep those stories coming. If you have anything to share, you can record a message and email it to me or call in at 202-999-3991 and try to keep those messages as concise as possible. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. 
left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're doing Can't see past